This is Rabbi Josh Uter of the Stanton Street Shul. Thank you for downloading this class podcast. These classes are provided free of charge through the generosity of the Stanton Street Shul community and supporters like you. If you do enjoy them, please consider making a donation to our synagogue's building fund on our website's shop donate page at www.stantonstshul.com. Good morning. It is Sunday, October 13th, 2013. Next stage in our halachic process class is the topic that I called Gedolatry and Das Torah. Um, two critical terms, one of which is kind of invented. Um, as uh, I, Normally I, would, I, I was thinking about taking these separately, but the truth is, as we'll see later on, Das Torah, or at least what we call Das Torah, is intimately connected with Gedolatry. And I have to explain that Gedolatry term first and foremost. Uh, the first source here is actually one of my own essays, and normally I'm loath to cite myself in these classes, because, like, you want to read what I have to say? Read what I have to say. Uh, the term uh, was coined by uh, the late Professor Arthur Hertzberg, uh, with whom my father was very close, and I got the term from him. And actually wrote an essay, you know, sort of explaining the logic behind it. And like many of these critical terms classes, since not everything is mentioned explicitly or has a real Hebrew equivalent, there's a lot more unpacking we have to do that may or may not based uh, may or may not be based in the Hebrew sources. For example, last week when we did consensus, right? It's hard to determine what exactly does this word consensus mean. We tried introducing this idea of rove. Rove just means a majority, right? But then there's also something quantifiable. But the term consensus isn't really used quantifiably, and then it gets all messy. Um, same thing here, when you're talking about relying on certain, you know, rabbis for certain reasons, uh, there should be some basis for it, but we need to unpack everything, both the logic or what's based on actual sources, try to understand, like, are these sources being interpreted correctly or accurately? Um, so I guess I will start here because this is kind of, uh, I'll, I'll just summarize the thing that I wrote here. Um, free to read the in greater detail with footnotes online. The website's uh, the exact URL is listed here. Um, the argument of Gedolatry, I'll you know, summarize as simply listening to great rabbis. Now, the word being uh, listening to Gedolim, the great rabbis, or listening to a Gadol, single for a great rabbi. Before we unpack this, what are some questions that you think we need to ask about listening to great rabbis? First ones that come to your head. What makes a great rabbi? Bingo. The f- obvious question is one of definition. What makes a particular rabbi great? How do you know a particular rabbi is great? In uh, the original smicha, you had you know, sort of a reputation, but once you had the level of smicha, and once you were sitting on that you know board of the Sanhedrin, you actually were sort of an independent you know voice that you could say, and when you took votes, you, the youngest, in fact, would vote first so as not to be intimidated by the later ones. Today, though, we have no objective standard by which to measure gadlut, right? Some people may know more than others, but how do you do a test? Is it pure knowledge? Is it the application of knowledge? Is it productivity? Or how much does someone write? But anyone who's read knows that just because you publish a book doesn't mean it's any good. How do you evaluate any of these things? Um, so, like I mentioned here, um, you know, that there's one of the assumptions of faith is that there's an elite class 
that maintains authority over legal, teleological, uh, theological, and public policy questions to which all Jews must adhere and lesser rabbis must defer. So when you make this assumption of gadol, you're assuming that this in fact exists as a legal class, that one person's halachic opinion matters more across all of Klal Yisrael than someone else's. And we're not just talking by pure reputation, we're saying that there is a legal, a halachic assumption behind it. Meaning it's one thing to say that, oh, Rabbi Moshe finds it and someone else disagrees, you listen to Rav Moshe, but you have a halachic obligation to listen to Rav Moshe over someone else. And to what extent can there be any sort of disagreement into which do you take that seriously? There have been um, analogies, and we'll see a little bit later, towards secular knowledge, meaning you have experts in particular fields to which people often defer. However, even in secular fields, people who have PhDs, people who have tenure, people who are deans of university are still subject to objective peer review. You can challenge the research of others. Take the field of the sciences. You can have an accepted scientific definition based on certain experiments, and then you come up with always like, hey, your experiment was flawed, and then all that research based off of that flawed experiment needs to get redone. You can retest it. You can reevaluate it. But one of the things that we've been struggling with today is since there's no objective definition that many people have for what is halakha, and by objective I mean a clear, definable, defensible system, how do you even objectify or objectively determine what makes this opinion valid or legitimate? A bit hard to parse out these you know, questions. So when people say you ought to listen to a particular individual, there's a whole lot that they're assuming that, yes, this person is in fact great, even though how do they wind up defining it is somewhat uncertain. I heard a similar problem um, attributed in sort of like the yoga circles called the guru paradox where you as an individual might not know a lot, but you somehow can determine who a great person is. So like when it comes to Gedolim, right? Well, you yourself might not know enough to open up and learn Shulchan Aruch, but somehow you, whether or not you have smicha, can determine who in fact is a Gadol. See the problem? I'll throw out another one for you. Uh, and this is a, this I've never had the opportunity, or at least when I have had the opportunity, I didn't have the chutzpah to ask the question. I might now at this point in my life. But when someone makes appeals to Gedolim and says, you have to follow the Gadol, is that person who's making the statement a Gadol himself? And the reason why that's an important question is, if that person is a Gadol, well, explain why you think you're a Gadol. And if you're not a Gadol, then why should we listen to your statement that we have to listen to Gedolim? Meaning, and this is why it's tricky, and why I was uh, speaking to some people about over Shabbat, this gets into a form of vicarious Judaism. Very few rabbis have the clear arrogance to get up and say, I am a Gadol, and using it in this context. I don't just mean I'm important enough to have an opinion, because the truth is lots of people have opinions. You defend your opinions based on arguments or based on other halachic literature. So that's an argument based on evidence. In terms of an argument based on pure charisma, of like this person's opinions ought to matter more than someone else's. Because again, when you're not judging the merits of the argument itself, you're judging it based on the charisma of the individual, very few people 
that I know of would have the clear hubris and arrogance to say, I am a gadol, and say so explicitly. So what do you do? You say your teachers were gadolim. Now, that way, you become great by association. I've seen this happen because I was around YU a lot with Rav Soloveitchik. People will tout, and I'm not going to mention individuals, but there are a few that I have in mind, will tout the greatness of Rav Soloveitchik, and then throw in, oh, by the way, I happen to have studied in Rav Soloveitchik's year, which tells me nothing about you other than, oh, by virtue of your association with this great person, therefore you become great by association. Mm. So that's one way of doing it, or you rely on other people's statements, but then you would have to have a gadol who says you have to listen to gadolim in order for that statement to have any good halachic weight, because otherwise you just keep on begging the question down further generations. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if someone were to do the greatness by association thing, because they studied under Rav Soloveitchik, mm-hmm. I don't know, my first inclination, unless they were just really wonderful, my first inclination would be to say, yeah, you and 9,999 others, but... Also, Rav Soloveitchik used to refer to himself as a teacher. Not as a, certainly not as a and Rav not Moshe, as a leader. Rav Moshe Feinstein, Shiva. from everything that I've heard of the people who knew him personally, didn't refer to himself as a gadol. Of course not. Well, you say, of course not. I'd never met the, I never met him. But from the people that you know, I spoke to from this community who have, always speak of how modest he was. Right. So he's not the person who's going to say, "I am a gadol." Right? But you see why other people would want to do that to their teacher because it, by extension, bumps them up. With Rosaloveitchik, just a slight digression, because this actually, one of my prouder moments in grad school, um, I got Dr. Elman to change his notes for a class that he gave for like so many years. His intro to Tanaitic literature class, we were going through a source and he said, this particular source seems indicative of a faulty trans, um, tradition because we have two students of the same teacher coming out and saying the exact opposite things. Mm-hmm. And I raised my hand and I said, wait, haven't you heard of her Soloveitchik? He said, what do you mean? Well, how many students did he have in his year that all teach his name completely opposite things? And he looks at me and then he starts scribbling in his old yellow pad that he's been teaching from for years from this Jordan class. So, you know, that is another, you know, issue here. Um, so, yes, again, when you're talking about the original levels of rabbis, it was smicha from the Sanhedrin. We don't really have that today. You've got whatever smicha that we have, you keep on begging the question like generations before and say, well, it had to come from someplace because it didn't come from the Sanhedrin, and all of that must be justified. And then even if you want to say certain assumptions, well then, when do people listen to them and when do they not? Uh, I've mentioned before that my favorite Scot- uh, fa- logical fallacy is the no true Scotsman fallacy, which goes something like this. No true Scotsman would do something. Oh, that person did it. Therefore, he's no true Scotsman. Just like no from Jew would eat in this place. Ah, that person eats there. Must be he's not a from Jew. I've heard similar things rhetorically, not so much in print regarding Gedolim, uh, where people have said no Gadol would say. Actually, this came up in Shir once. Uh, one of my rabbis said no Gadol would say that you can make Havdalah on an electric light. And I said, but actually, here's someone who does. And he says, ah, you see my point? And that's actually how things went. Um, so what exactly you do with that? We also saw um, in the uh, Politics of Exclusion class, uh, Rashal Lieberman, before he took the job at JTS, he was treated like a guttle. Once he assumed that position, he wasn't. Right? 
And then you could also throw in other questions about what exactly, even for the people who do have this uh, perception of, you know, who do work in these worlds of Gedolim, what power do they actually have? And I know this comes up in Israel a lot, where, you know, people uh, from certain communities might go off and do bad things. And people ask, well, why don't the Gedolim do anything? And one answer I've heard, again, this hasn't been imprinted, so take this as you wish, is, well, they don't really have the power. Well, like, make up your mind then. If you're going, and I will say this, one thing that I found somewhat frustrating is when I've actually posited this idea to some rabbinic colleagues, the answer I've gotten has been some variant of consensus, which still keeps you in this gray area, which means, who are the gedolim? People who we generally assume are gedolim. Right? Which again begs the question that we asked last week about how do you determine who gets counted in the consensus? Worse, you're basically reducing the core point of Jewish law isn't about the gadol, it's about the people. It's about populism. Meaning when you follow the logic, if the gadol is only determined by the community, then at the end of the day, the community determines what its own laws are because it picks its own gadolin. Yeah. Isn't there a difference between who a community chooses to follow and who a gadol is. A community could, I mean, the community chose the Egel over Moshe Rabbeinu. Well, yes. That, that, that doesn't make them right. Well, yeah, we actually gave detailed shirim on what is the role of popular practice. But if you're going to resort to consensus, well, consensus of whom, right? There's no, since there's no, if we had a formal vote and we had a formal position, like back in the day, you know, some... Reish Galuta equivalent of like a chief rabbi of America. Look, we couldn't even have a chief rabbi of New York more than one rabbi, let alone of all of America. So if you could do such a thing, fine. Then you have a formal position. Okay? But we're t- Rav Moshe had no such election of such things, right? No one voted him and people call him a guttle. The question is why? Well, lots of other people called him a guttle and therefore what? Right? And you keep asking these therefore what questions it sort of unravels, or it comes down to, we do it because we say so. And if there's any sort of conflict, we have what you, Dana, like saying so often, my rabbi can beat up your rabbi. Um, and say, well, this rabbi... And that's unfortunately what you break down to when you have no system of evaluating the content of what people say, and you're relying totally on the uh, charisma or on the personality of the individual. If you're talking about someone who has an accepted position, sure. In this shul, I mean, in theory, I'm hired as the rabbi, my word ought to go. Practically, it doesn't as much as I'd like. But I could say that about any rabbi in the... Like, I keep saying there's no rabbi who has complete control over the practices of a shul. It just doesn't happen, right? But there, at least, you can say, the people of this community has chosen this person to be their rav. Okay, right? But the question with Gedolin comes up to... You know, let's say, I mean, no one can write something like Igris Moshe without being incredibly knowledgeable, right? Ravavadi Yosef, for whatever criticisms people may have on him, no one can say he wasn't knowledgeable about something. I even read, uh, there was a, in one of the papers I edited at YU, someone wrote an essay where he uh, said that Ravavadi Yosef missed a source, which is one of the dumbest things you could say about Ravadi Yosef, because he was known for a complete encyclopedic knowledge. You don't like what he says, that's one thing. But to say that he missed something that was obvious, that's not something you can say about him, right? But there's a difference between saying someone is a recognized authority, right? Rav Moshe is someone who many people consult because 
clearly knowledgeable, clearly a lot of people respected his opinion. But there's a difference between saying one could study Rav Moshe versus you have to follow Rav Moshe, right? Same thing with Ravadi Yosef. It's one thing to say you're not going to consult people or these people aren't worth reading. There are very few, if anyone, I'd say, yeah, don't bother reading this person. Read whomever you want. You might give greater weight to Rav Moshe Feinstein, but let's say you think Rav Moshe Feinstein was Gadol Hador. How do you convince someone else that they have to follow Rav Moshe? Very big difference. I mean, if you say, well, I follow Rav Moshe, you'll probably get off, you know, most people will leave you alone for things. But to start telling other people you have to listen to this guy, whoa. Ramosha Feinstein never said you had to listen to him. And in fact, he wrote himself that you can argue with him. This is in, uh, I think, I didn't put it in the source sheet here. It's in, I think, Eredeo 101, if I'm remembering. Uh, we have something to that effect. Yeah. Um, we learned in the Rambam that he was going in, in citing medical and science data, mm-hmm. that he was going according to the best information of his day. So hold off on that. We'll, we'll get to that in the Das Torah section. Yeah. Okay. So that applies to just even on a halachic component here. You know, when people say you're supposed to follow the Gedolim, you need to define who they are, how did they get this definition, does such a status exist in Jewish law such that certain people's opinions are halachically mandatory to be followed by everyone else? Right? Yeah. Are we going to get into the everyone else part? Because, I mean, if you're talking about living Gedolim, yeah. there's no such thing as someone who, whose rulings are going to be applicable to Klal Yisrael, like all of them, because mm. you have different communities. Of pre- I mean, That was more of last week's class on yeah. consensus. But the, I'm not talking about consensus. I'm simply talking about, like, you know, I am... Nobody's going to say that I am bound to follow certain rulings of a Sephardic rabbi. Yeah, so that actually ties into other things that we did on Trudeau. It's a wonderful question. Mm. To treat that responsibly, we'd have to go back to some of the other classes that we did. But you're right. You are absolutely right. And people will sort of... Something that I heard in Yeshiva myself was, it's Minag Yisrael, right? The custom of all the Jewish people. Mm. So I'd raise my hand and said, actually, no. You're a whole (laughs) bunch of people who disagree. Well, it's Minag Yisrael amongst the Ashkenazim. (laughs) But then it's not Minag Yisrael, then is it? And you'd be correct. Um, but like even Rav Avad Yosef, does a Sephardi have an obligation to follow Rav Avad Yosef? Many do for a whole lot of reasons. But could you say if you follow, say, some other halakhic authority or another Svara over Rav Avad Yosef, are you breaking Jewish law? And that's the real question that we need to deal with because people will say, well, you're doing something wrong, breaking Jewish law, and by implication, taking it many steps back, violating the will of God. Right? Because that's what this religion is about. Remember God? Yeah, this is all a religion about God. So, where Das Torah comes in, and we'll see a few different definitions of this, is two things. One, we'll see that it extends the opinions of Gedolim, of the great rabbis, beyond the area of halacha, and applies to matters of policy as well. That's component one. All right? Because normally, like you could say, well... A rabbi has expertise in Jewish law. They'll pass in Jewish law. But let's say it comes up to something like medical ethics. Not uncommon for rabbis to make psakalach which that even if they understand Jewish law, they don't understand the reality that they're discussing. We'll see that in a few weeks in a Wednesday class when we get to electricity. 
many of the earlier rulings on electricity had no bearing on reality. Uh, I also referenced in my post on idolatry, uh, Moshe Tendler uh, complained that he has to argue what counts as brain death with rabbis who never went to college. And Rabbi Moshe, uh, Moshe David Tendler has a PhD in bio. So you have a PhD in bio who's also a rabbi who's arguing medical ethics with people without a college degree. And even if you want to assume that the reason why a gadol is considered so great is because they're immense knowledge, but you're knowledgeable in certain areas of the world, not in others. You've got rabbis who made a bunch of statements on how do you report child abuse? How do you believe it? Though, to my knowledge, there isn't a single rabbinical school that teaches criminology, hmm. right? So if you're going to hold by that standard, well, some rabbis know certain areas and they're discussing a lot better than you because they actually studied it firsthand. And we'll see how that actually come, factors in, too. The other thing we'll see with Das Torah, or at least variants of opinions, is that it get, we'll see an, a suggested justification for why certain rabbis are to be treated at a higher level than others. Because remember what I said if, earlier, like there has to be some uber class if you're going to make an argument of Gadol, and that has to be defined or justified somehow. In academia, it's by degrees. Right, you get a PhD. Even beyond that, publications, tenure, various sort of awards. Right, so there are things that you can point to, and even then, again, you can still be argued against. But in terms of, you've got you know somewhat displays of recognition about certain things. People can complain about them, but at least you got something that you can hold on to. With Gedolim, there really isn't. I mean, maybe you have an additional smicha, like yadin yadin. Okay. But beyond that, lots of people, you know, have various forms of smicha, and some are just more knowledgeable than others. So we're going to give an example, or at least we're going to see justifications for why to follow certain rabbis more than others, okay? And how do they base it either theologically or halakhically? Okay? We're all good so far? That's why I wanted to combine the two together and didn't just want to spend one on gadolatry, though. The two things are, you'll see from this class how that portmanteau of guttle and idolatry is not as pure snarky as it might just seem. Um, Gordon, could you start us off with uh, what I have here, source number two. This is an article written in the Jewish Week in 2003. I apologize for not including the URL link. I only found it in archive.org. Um, you can search for this and you'll find like the original source online. Um, but this was published in the Jewish Week. What he writes as what dot Torah really means. Go for it. There's been considerable buzz of late about what has come to, fit, come to be called dot Torah, the concept of trusting in the judgment of great Torah scholars regarding not only issues of Jewish religious law or halakha, but issues of a sociological or even political nature, no less. In December, as Yeshiva University sought a new president, its longtime president, Rabbi Norman Lamb, explained why the opinion of leading Talmudic scholars at the seminary was not afforded great weight. Quote, we don't work on the concept of Das Torah, he said. There is no principle of infallibility that we accept. So to explain here, uh, does anyone remember what went on here in 2003? Rabbi Norman Lamb was stepping down as president. They were hiring Richard Joel. Um, so some people say, well, why don't you ask your Rosh Yeshiva? Why don't you ask like the rabbis whom you have hired to teach students? And he said, we don't work on Das Torah on a con uh, principle of infallibility. That's how he explained it. Continue. At a recent conference, the Modern Orthodox Group Gizal's director, Rabbi Saul Berman, 
recounted how encounters with Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik had left him with the impression that the elder rabbi made a distinction between religious matters where, quote, his authority on halakha was binding and political or social matters where they were not. The implicit message, the New York Jewish Week's Deborah Nussbaum Cohen wrote, was that, the modern, was that modern Orthodox Jews are not bound by Da'at Torah, a belief prevalent in the Haredi world. A week later, Jewish Week editor Gary Rosenblatt pointed to a public apology that was offered by a respected rabbi for a misjudgment as proof that Da'at Torah is an inherently indefensible belief. Whether Da'at Torah should be discounted by non-Haredi Jews or not, not, and whether a rabbi's admission of having made a mistake undermines the principle, it doesn't, one thing that certainly does not help the cause of objective consideration of the idea is its misrepresentation. All right, so right now he's explaining, and we're going to address his assumptions here, there are, he, he is citing several examples that seem to imply that dot Torah implies rabbinic infallibility. And he takes issue with that definition of dot Torah. So continue bottom line, uh, underlined here, dot Torah. Dot Torah is not some Jewish equivalent to the Catholic doctrine of papal infallibility. Not only can rabbis make mistakes of judgment, there is an entire tractate of the Talmud, uh, Horirut. Hor, uh, Horayot. Hor, no, Horayot. Uh, predicated on the assumption that they can, that even the Sanhedrin is capable of erring, even in halachic matters. What Da Torah means, simply put, is that those most imbued with Torah knowledge and who have internalized a large degree of the perfection of values and refinement of character that the Torah idealizes are thereby rendered particularly, indeed extraordinarily, qualified to offer an authentic Jewish perspective on matters of import to Jews, just as expert doctors are those most qualified, though still fallible to be sure, to offer medical advice. Jewish tradition refers to Torah leaders as the eyes of the community. That is because they see things more clearly than the rest of us, not necessarily perfectly, and there are times when God purposefully hides things from even his most accomplished disciples but more clearly all the same. Yeah, just as a slight digression here. You know, when he says here that the Torah leaders are the eyes of the community, you remember from last night when we went through this week in Dafyomi, one of the things that uh, was uh, Rabbi Akiva who told his son, don't live in a community where Torah scholars are its leaders. Just putting it out there. Um, then he explains about transcendence of Torah. Uh, he tries connecting it to something called um, yeah, uh, the phrase that term may be a relatively new one, but the insinuation that the concept uh, it reflects is some sort of modern invention by unmodern Jews is absurd. Emunat chachamim, or trust in the judgment of the Torah wise, has been part of the Jewish tradition for the millennia. The Talmud and Jewish history are replete with examples of how the Jewish community looked to their religious leaders for guidance about social, political, and personal decisions, decisions that, as believing Jews, they understood must be based on Torah values. Um, and he explains that modern orthodox has very different meanings to different groups of people. And he says that you need an appreciation of Datsura is understood correctly as follows. He concludes uh, by saying, in the words of a great leader of Jews, the same priest whose mind was suffused with the holiness of the Torah of Rabbi Yekiva and Rabbi Eliezer, Abaye and Rava, the Rambam and Rava, Beit Yosef and Ramah, could also discern with the Holy Spirit the solution to all the current political questions, to all matters, and to all ongoing demands. Those words written in 1940 as part of a eulogy for a great Lithuanian Torah scholar and leader, Rabbi Chaim Moser Gudinsky. The author was Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik. Okay. Any thoughts first hand on what Rabbi Shafrin has written? Yes. Well, 
in matters of Torah, mm-hmm. where they have an encyclopedic knowledge and can cite sources, mm-hmm. is one thing. If a congregant goes to a rabbi with something like, um, my daughter wants to marry a Syrian Jew, what, what should I think about it? And the rabbi has the thing against Syrian Jews. Mm-hmm. How do you, how, well, can, can one separate? I mean, do we call that a sociological thing and, and, Figure out whether the rabbi has a personal agenda and a personal stake in the answer. So that, that we're going to extrapolate a bit, but let's try to deal with that here. How do you think, all right, summarizing what Rabbi Shafrin said, how does he define dot Torah? How do, what is it and how does it work? Well, Open anyone here. Corinne, what do you think? I'm not sure yet. <laughs> okay, Corey, what do you think? Well, he seems to, just as much as he says what it is, he also seems to say what it's not. Well, so... Political that, or social matters are, you know, outside the scope. It seems sort of like a cautionary tale. Or, Explain. Like, like uh, explaining that we need to avoid uh, elevating these rabbis... To um, to a level that's like just really beyond their scope. We sh- we shouldn't. Uh, it's sort. It's almost idolatrous. So you say almost idolatrous. It's inter- interesting you mention that. What do you think, Ori? You had something? No, I mean it, it. It seems to be saying just that you know this this isn't infallibility. Yeah. It's simply that you know Torah knowledge confers a certain kind of like far seeing. Mm-hmm. You know. Yes. Yeah. That, that's a very good, very good way of putting it, and refers to a munat chachamim trust in the sages, right? But also remember, you know, what exactly does trust mean, right? And let's not forget the words of um, Ronald Reagan, trust but verify, right? Or it could be according to this, well, maybe they have a vote but not a veto, uh, to copy someone else's line. Hmm. Um, also realize that the word idiom dot Torah, at least in this particular context, like Orthodox Judaism has no single owner, which means it's going to be open to different interpretations that we'll soon see. You'll notice, um, actually we'll get back to that, but okay. now for the next few sources here, uh, referring to an article by uh, Professor Lawrence Kaplan, who a couple of years ago was actually a Tikva fellow in Davin here a couple of times. Oh, nice guy. So he wrote a piece um, in a uh, a series called the Orthodox Forum, called Das Torah, a modern conception of rabbinic authority, and he wrote this after an exchange on something that he had in uh, something that he wrote in tradition. Uh, so, Corinne, start us off here with his article. The actual citation is at the end of the uh, source sheet. Right. Uh, perhaps the clearest and most forceful presentation of the ideology of Das Torah is to be found in the following statement attributed to Hafez Chaim. The person whose view is the view of the Torah can solve all worldly problems, both specific and general. However, there is one condition attached. The Das Torah must be pure, without any interest or bias. However, if there is a person who possesses Das Torah, but is intermingled even slightly with other views from the marketplace or from newspapers, then this Das Torah is turbid, intermingled with dreads. Such a person cannot penetrate into the heart of the matter. You continue. 
Uh, thus, paradoxically, or maybe not so paradoxically, it is the rabbis who are completely immersed in the world of Torah and seemingly removed from the outside world who, in truth, possess a unique penetrating insight into the challenges and needs of the situation. And it is only they who, consequently, can draw upon the spirit of tradition in order to formulate the policies needed to meet these challenges and needs. So according to this view, right, which, and we could argue to what extent Rabbi Shaffron's comments fit in with this or not, um, you know, is the, you actually need to know less of the secular world and be fully engrossed in the purity of Torah, and then you happen to know everything else associated with it. Well, not just less, but nothing. Nothing. Zero. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it seems like an absurd statement on the face of it, because, mm. you know, I mean, how is that even possible? There's no way that even someone in, in the most, uh, um, you know, even, even in the most restrictive community, mm. there's no way for certain cultural uh, assumptions not to, not to sort of leech into that. Yeah, but you see, you only know that because your mind has been tainted by reading books in English. So, therefore, you can't possibly understand it. That was snark. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry about that. So this seems to apply to more, uh, like, social-cultural situations. Bingo. Um, but what, what would be, like, um, does it also imply that knowledge and, and logic and sciences is detrimental to uh, the status It's not so much logic and knowledge and sciences is bad. The way that I would interpret this is that all of that knowledge is embedded in the Torah. So that once you know the Torah backwards and forwards, you know everything about how the world works. Even though there are some things in medical science that we know to be incorrect. Like we learned in Dafyomi last week that if it's the first time you're having sex, you can't get pregnant if you're a woman. I believe we have many examples of that to the contrary. Um, but yes, that's kind of how, as I understand this, works. It's sort of antithetical to the Maimonides philosophy, the, the deeper your knowledge of... of yes, so according... That, that's a very good thing, because you mentioned about um, Maimonides. According to this passage, Maimonides couldn't have had Das Torah, because he read Aristotle. He tried to understand medicine. The very <laughs> fact that he tried to do this meant, by definition, couldn't have had Das Torah. What an absurd statement. Well... I will let you make your own value judgments to this. Um, Kaplan continues re, in the next part. Uh, this is regarding, this is how he explains Rabbi Soloveitchik's eulogy, the last line that Rabbi Shaffron quoted. Keep in mind, uh, Lawrence Kaplan's article came out in uh, 1992. Shaffron's piece in the Jewish Week was 2003, right? So when Shaffron knows what he's referring to, Right? When he says, when he makes comments like, it's not like papal infallibility, he's referring to stuff. When he says, it's a modern invention by unmodern Jews, he knows what he's referring to. Parts that I took out of Kaplan, I apologize for the digression here, is that the construction of Das Torah formulated today, he seems to attribute to specific post-war, uh, good, uh, um, I guess, what, what's the good word for it? Um, I don't, that's a good word. Post-war, a good rhetoric. Let's leave it at that. And he goes through, it's, I would say it's well worth finding and reading the entire article. And he goes through a whole bunch of other different definitions. But in his historical terms, the use of Dostor is that applies today specifically in response to post-war halachic theology. And that is what, or I mean, even though attributed to Hafiz Chaim is, you know, was before the war, um, as applied by the Moetzes Gedolei Turin, he actually cited one, one, um, in the exchange in tradition, 
one of the writers to tradition who was complaining about something Professor Kaplan wrote in a previous issue pretty much said explicitly that Das Torah is specifically adherence to the Moetzes Kedole of Aguda, which is whatever the heads of the Aguda says. That was his definition. So when Shafrin writes that it's not a modern invention by unmodern Jews, I'm guessing that's what he's referring to without saying so explicitly. But I took a lot of the historical side out of the Kaplan article to try to focus more on the rhetoric of the argument as opposed to the history, which for our purposes isn't going to be as important. But here, so you have Rav Soloveitchik, and when Rav Shafrin quotes, Rabbi Shafrin quotes Rabbi Soloveitchik for, you know, why you? Well, Rabbi Soloveitchik's their big Rav. He's their leader, so why don't you listen to what he has to say? Here is... Kaplan giving it a little bit more context. Huh. Me? Yes. Thus paradoxical. No, it is no coincidence. Oh, it is no coincidence that this eulogy was delivered at the second annual conference of the Agudas Yisrael of the United States at a time, moreover, when Rav Soloveitchik was a vice president of the Aguda. Nor is it a coincidence that in the eulogy Rav Soloveitchik contrasted this type of all-embracing leadership as embodied, for example, by Rav Chaim Ozer, with the secular leadership of non-traditional movements wishing to reserve communal leadership for themselves and reduce their rabbis to religious functionaries who rule only on purely ritual or technical halachic manners, we have there then an elicent expression uh, uh, Excellent. Of, that should be excellent. Yeah, I was going to... Uh, yeah, unfortunately, even though I have a PDF of it, I couldn't just copy and paste, but this should be excellent. An excellent expression of the Aguda ideology of Das Torah. So the way that he's explaining Rav Soloveitchik in context is he was preaching to the choir. This is what Aguda thought. So at the eulogy of Chaim Gradinsky, he explained things in ways that the people there actually would understand and appreciate. Well, if... If you were reducing rabbis to religious functionaries' rule on purely ritual or technical halachic matters, mm -hmm. there are going to be times when halacha intercedes with, or, or intersects with, quote-unquote, real life, and there, there are issues to be considered other than okay. what's in Shulchan so, Archa the Gemara. So on that, um, there's a rabbi, I forget who the first person that I heard in name said this, and I don't want to misquote uh, anyone. I will just say that it wasn't me. Um, at a rabbinic interview, was asked, what is the function of the rabbi? And he said, it's the job of the rabbi to make all decisions in the areas of halacha, including the decisions of what counts as an area of halacha. Wow. Which kind of makes sense. That's pretty much what you're saying. Meaning, something happens in a shul... Right? You can say, well, that's not a halachic issue. The rabbi can say, yeah, this is a halachic issue because this is how you're treating other people. That's a halachic issue, even though it's not strictly as my kitchen kosher. Right? So it's not just determining, you know, balls and strikes to use Robert's, um, you know, idiom from when he was, uh, being interviewed. You're not just determining, you know, us or mutter. It's also determining when it is that you need to rule and interceding. So in that respect, yes, what exactly is a halachic issue? Something you might not think is a halachic issue, another rabbi could, and that has to be in his idea too. So I know that that's one solution to that. That could be a really tough call. Yes, it can be a tough call. But if you don't like it, then don't hire that rabbi. Right? Again, there's a different thing. There, again, we have to make an important distinction between saying, here is someone whom I choose to follow versus here's someone whom you have to follow. Huge difference there. Once you say, I have no right to follow this rabbi, whoa. Right? 
Yeah. Sorry to bring in personal baggage, but supposing the question is something like, should I go to college? Yeah. Well, my God, the, the possibility of, of personal agendas and the rabbi's personal baggage on the issue is frightening. Mm-hmm. And it could also be based on experience. Aaron Lichtenstein at Gush used to get that question a whole bunch of times. Go to secular college. And from what I was told, the answer was for undergraduate, no. For graduate, sure. Because on his experience, in, to give some background, Ravon Lichtenstein has a PhD in English from Harvard. So unlike many people who weigh on this, actually spent some time in a secular campus. And his opinion was, based on you know kids and based on intellectual development, undergraduate is still a formative time. Solidify your faith in your religious observance. So when you go to graduate school, yeah, you can learn the other stuff as you need, and you'll still have enough background. So he said go to YU or... Um, or some other, you know, alternative. I you know, he's officially, I believe, I think he still is, but certainly for a long time he was on an official faculty member at YU. Uh, he taught it gross on a regular basis when they put up the big thing of Roshi Yeshiva. He was on there, so he's not going to, well, I shouldn't say that because there were Roshi Yeshiva who criticized YU regularly when they were there, but he's not the type to do that. Um, but yes, he would, so that's how, like, he would answer others. It depends. I mean, you could easily say it depends on the student, depends on the college, but someone like Ravarn Lichtenstein isn't going to spend, you know, his time keeping up on every single university across the world. Now, keep in mind, you have students. I know this is shocking. There's students, you know, from abroad who study at Haaretzion who aren't from America. So I know it's amazing. So, like to say, secular college. Well, what's out there? And he's not. It just this was his assessment based on his experience and. He actually has more experience than most in this regard. So, whatever. And there are other people who have written who have done PhDs. Um, there was an essay that came out in the early 2000s specifically on sending kids to secular college. And there were uh, rabbis who had, were you know, doing advanced programs in prestigious universities who were arguing, don't send your kids to secular college because of what they were saying at the time. And if you know, you're saying, it's like, wait a second, this is no place for you know, an 18-year-old or an 18-year-old Jew who's trying to become observant. Whatever. Anyway, he continues, We are suggesting then that the ideology of Das Torah, in in large part, is intended to provide a basis for a new type of rabbinic authority, a type of authority that can serve as a substitute for the traditional mechanisms whereby both lay and rabbinic leadership of a functioning Jewish communities dealt with new challenges, whether through takanot, be they takanot or rabbinically instituted takanot, they wrote, the ban and the like. Now, this is an important point here where he says that this is a new type of rabbinic authority. He's contrasting this, and again, this is going to be somewhat of a dispute of historical narrative or mythic history of how were halachic decisions made. According to one you know, view of the history, rabbis made stuff either with, if you don't want to say with outright consultation, but did, made decisions in somewhat partnership with the communities. According to another narrative, rabbis get up and make big decisions and everyone else just follows along with it. And that's the way it works. We've seen from the Tosafot that that's not always the case, where the Baalei Tosafot reinterpreted passages in the Talmud to best coincide with what people were doing, not the other way around. But at any rate, this is a matter of myth-telling, and to what extent do you reconstruct history to fit the narratives that you want. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. Uh, no, I'm sorry, not a few weeks ago. We talked about that before the break uh, with Rabbi J.J. Um, uh, Schachter's article on historical revisionism. Yeah. 
Uh, just one thing is uh Kahal, is that more than what it sounds like it's well i'm not sure what, how he makes um a distinction between takanota kahal or takanote i don't know how kaplan himself is making it mm-hmm. whether or not it's a decree specifically for the community or community instituted we're decreeing for ourselves okay. um at any rate he gives he has uh, three statements from post-war era should give us a good picture of the contemporary ideology of das torah these are his citations and his translations, and we will compare what these people whom Kaplan is citing, um, to what extent do they mesh with or perhaps are not representative of what Rabbi Shaffrin tried presenting um, almost 10 years later. Corey, do the first one. This is from Chazon Ish, or, yeah, Chazon Ish. The viewpoint that divides the Torah in two questions of Isor Beheter on the one hand, and guidance in everyday life on the other, and that holds that for Isor Beheter one should subjugate oneself to the sages of one's time, while leaving other matters to one's own free choice. This is the viewpoint held by the heretics of old in Germany, who drove their brethren to assimilate with other nations. For one to distinguish between instruction regarding Isor Beheter and matters of legislation constitutes a denigration of Talmidei Chachamim, and places one in the category of those who have no portion in the world to come. Well, now this is a pretty big, big change here. I mean, the way Rabbi Shaffron was writing, it's like, oh, this is something that you ought to consult, right? So go ahead, because this is part of our tradition. Language of the Chazonish is, if you assume that you don't have to ask rabbis and matters of secular stuff, you lose your portion in the world to come. That's a wee bit more than, you know, nice to ask, Right. Uh, Corinne, take the next one. This is attributed to Reb Eliyahu Dessler in the Mechtav Meliyahu. Whoever was present at their meetings, the Hafez Karim, Rav Karim Berster, Rav Karim Moser, uh, could have no doubt that he could see uh, the Shekinah resting on the work of their hands and that the Holy Spirit was present in their assemblies. Our rabbis have told us to listen to the words of the sages, even if they tell us that right is left and not to say, heaven forbid, that they certainly erred, because little I can see their error with mine own eyes. Rather, my seeing is null and void compared with the clarity of intellect and the divine aid they receive. This is the Torah view, Das Torah, concerning faith in the sages, and when not Hachamim. Uh, the absence of self-negation toward our rabbis is the root of all sin and the beginning of all destruction, while all merits are as not compared with the root of all faith in the sages. And take the last one, Dana. This is Rabbi Bernard Weinberger, cited uh, from the Jewish Observer. Kedoli Yisrael possesses special endowment or capacity to penetrate objective reality, recognize facts as they are, as they really are, and apply pertinent halachic principles. This endowment is a form of Ruach HaKodesh, as it were, bordering, if only remotely, on the periphery of prophecy. Gedolei Israel inherently ought to be the final and sole arbiters of all aspects of Jewish communal policy and questions of Hashkafa, and even knowledgeable rabbis who may differ with the Gedolim on a particular issue must submit to the superior wisdom of the Gedolim and demonstrate a Munas how do you think these three paragraphs line up with uh, Rabbi Shaffron's description? Now, keep in mind, only two of these used, um, and the word Das Torah was used explicitly by uh, Rabbi Dessler. Um, yeah, Rabbi Weinberger, I'm not sure, I didn't read the whole piece, I just used the citation. I don't know if he used the idiom Das Torah, probably did if Kaplan quoted it, but... What do you think these ideas fit in with what Rabbi Schaffen wrote or not? 
Well, he cited he cited that political and sociological uh, issues are outside the scope, and these three are saying nope. All right, Corinne, what is the basis? Especially, this was really made explicit in the last two sources of why you listen to these great rabbis. Because this endowment is a form of ruach hakodesh. Yeah. Form of the Holy Spirit, the Shekinah, close to prophecy. Now, that sound like anything? Heresy. Well, you say heresy. We'll actually like go through that in a little bit of detail. But what was the whole argument of papal infallibility? Right? You're speaking in the name of God. I mean, I know that's a huge oversimplification. We're not going to go through the details of Catholic theology here. Dogma, yes, we'd have a whole class on that. Don't yell at me about that one. Um, but Rabbi Shaffron is referring to those ideas that people are under this conception that people think you have to listen to the rabbis, these great rabbis, because it's impossible for them to make a mistake. And where would people possibly get such a ridiculous idea? Well, it looks like the Meftam Eliyahu is pretty clear about that, because you'll also notice he's referencing, do not deviate from the left or the right. And that's where we're going to get to the final sources here. So here's what it means in rabbinic literature. First, it's important to note that the idiom dot Torah does appear one time that I could find in rabbinic literature. It's a Gemara in Hulin, and it means the exact opposite of what it, everyone has taken it to mean. Here's how it goes. There's a discussion here about left and right hippogram regarding the uh, Gedanashah. So our Mishnah does not agree with Rabbi Yehuda, for it was taught Rabbi Yehuda said it only applies to one hip. What is the reason it favors the right hip? It was, at, it was asked, was Rabbi Yehuda certain about it? And by reason... He meant the reasoned interpretation of the Torah, or was he in doubt? And by reason, he meant the probable meaning. The distinction here is something that's dot Torah is something that you can cite chapter and verse. Here's what the Torah says. Whereas dot noteh, which is what's contrasted, is something that isn't explicitly in the Torah. There you go. Right? So for those who say, well, dot Torah is supposed to encompass everything, well, Dat noteh seems to be what that's called. In the rabbinic tradition, dat Torah means that which you can cite chapter and verse. Hey, this is what it is, right? You can point to something. As opposed to the modern conception of das Torah, which has nothing to do with any book that you point to. It's what someone happens to say because they happen to be the sage. So it's important to realize here that even the use of the idiom of das Torah in this different way represents a change in tradition from what the word originally meant, or the idiom, I should say, originally meant. So let's go on to the other component that was mentioned very specifically by Rabbi Dessler about not turning away to the left and the right. Corey, start us off. This is the verse in Devarim 17, 10, and 11. Uh, you must act according to the decisions they give you at the place the Lord will choose. Be careful to do everything they instruct you to do. Act according to whatever they teach you and the decisions they give you. Do not turn aside from what they tell you to the right or to the left. Right. So here it's important that that thing of do not deviate to the left or the right, certainly there in the Torah. One very important qualification here is that this refers to min hamakom asher yivchar Hashem, from the place where God will choose. What's the place that God chooses? Not a trick question. Eretz Yisrael. More than that. Eretz Yisrael on the time of the base I make. Come on. Almost there. Where did judges come? Where did you have Sanhedrin? Yes! Because the Sanhedrin, the great court, sat in Jerusalem, the place where God chose. So, biblically speaking, 
this commandment of do not deviate from the le- uh, either to the do not turn for the to the left or to the right, according to the Bible itself, really only applies to the Sanhedrin, not to everyone else. Because as we saw when we went through the rabbinic process, we have our own system of appellate courts. So clearly a higher court can overturn a lower court. It can't possibly apply to every single rabbi. Now you could argue, well, the Sanhedrin were the great rabbis, sure. But it took a lot to get on the Sanhedrin. We haven't had that in quite some time. Certainly no one today is on the Sanhedrin. No one has the real smicha from the Sanhedrin. Now on this matter of to the left or to the right, what's important to realize is that there are differences of opinions of interpretation in rabbinic literature, and it kind of gets... Well, we'll see what happens. Corinne, start us off with Sifrei Devarim Shofetim. Uh, again, the Sifrei is an early Midtanaitic mid, uh, uh, Midrash Halacha. So this is relatively early rabbinic text, legal exegesis. Right and left, even if what appears to you that right is left and left is right, you are to listen to them. Okay. So here, it would seem to indicate that... Um, you're supposed, even if they would, and some people have actually interpreted this. Uh, Lawrence Kaplan, in fact, notes a distinction between what the uh, Mit Sifrei actually says and how he's cited by Rashi. One way to read this, and this seems to be the view held by the Mirta Meliau and others, is that even if the rabbis tell you to do something that is wrong, you still follow them anyway. That's one way of reading it, and that's one way it's been interpreted. Another way is, Afilu mari'im be'enecha, even if it seems to you. Now that's a very important distinction there, because just because something seems to you that they've got it wrong doesn't mean that they actually have it wrong. It's predicated on the assumption that they see more than we are capable of seeing. Or let's even take it in the realm of halacha. Assuming you hit the Sanhedrin, you probably know more halacha than someone else. So even if it appears to you that they got it wrong, you're not there. or I mean, some people could be, but let's say you're not there. You haven't made the decision. You haven't made the deliberation. You don't know what they're going through. How do you know it's a wrong decision? It seems backwards, but people think things are backwards without knowing what they're talking about. Anyone who studied politics knows this. People have very strong opinions without having much of the data that's necessary, and that applies to halacha as well. Yeah. Could you imagine an interaction in which a congregant is told by a rabbi, well, left is right and right is left, and the congregant says, but rabbi, we're standing back to back. Interesting. Um, As in, like, there's a fact you're not aware of, or you forgot to take this into account, or show us your sources, or whatever. Oh, maybe. That there's a a challenge. Perhaps. And the truth is, you know, even in that scenario, I mean, what I just... It seems that according to this Sifrei, even if it goes against your intuition, you're still supposed to follow them. All right. Yerushalmi and Horayot says the exact opposite. Uh, Dana? Obviously, in such a... No, um, oh, no oh, seven. Oh, sorry, wrong Source wrong. number seven, Horayot 1145B. Is it possible that if people should say to you that right is left and left is right, you should listen to them? Scripture says to go to the right hand or, or the left, meaning that one follows the majority only if they declare to you that what is what actually is the right is right, and the left left. So this is the exact opposite of what the Sifrei said. Meaning, according to the Sifrei, you do what they say even if it's contrary exactly to your logic. Hariot says, no, it's up until that point. It's like, only if it's clear that right is right and left is left, you do it. Uh, and the Bavli, 
holds pretty much the same way. Gemara and Harayot 2b, uh, where it says, obviously in such a case where the scholar knew that it was prohibited, but erred in the interpretation of the precept of obeying the words of the sages. According to my view, it is also, it also it is a case where they erred in the interpretation of the, of the precept of obeying the words of the sages, meaning believing that the sages must be obeyed, even if here they permit a thing which is prohibited. Which means, there seems according to Chazal, maybe not the Sifrei, but certainly the Yushami and the Bavli, which from a halachic perspective are considered more authoritative as having the ability to overturn earlier tenetic, or at least uh, doctrine, I suppose, or halachic rulings, is that rabbis are indeed fallible. This is what Rabbi Shafford was quoting. But here's the weird thing. Not only is it that rabbis are fallible, but according to the Gemara and Harayot, if rabbis tell you to do something that's wrong, you're not supposed to listen to them. And even and this is also even referring to the Sanhedrin, Kalvachom are rabbis who don't have that sort of authority. So it's one thing to say you can ask rabbis for opinion, but where does it say that you're obligated to do necessarily what they say, especially if they tell you to do something that you know to be incorrect? Doesn't seem like you should. Now, in terms of that whole infallibility thing, right, you might have noticed that people have, you know, you saw those um, the references to the Shekhinah. You saw references to the Holy Spirit and Ruach HaKodesh. Part of that's based, or at least the source that I know of in Jewish sources, is Nachmanides, is Ramban. And if you've gone to Shir long enough, you, I've quoted these two together before. This is what got me the footnote in Chacham Fawur's writings here when I found this connection, where on that verse of Deuteronomy 17.11, he explains, even if to you it appears that the sages confuse the right with the left, and certainly if it appears to you that what they call right is in fact right, for the Spirit of God rests on his holy servants, and they will forever uh, they will be forever protected from making mistakes and stumbling right so when Shafrin says it's not a matter of papal infallibility when you actually go through a little bit of the history about how das torah is used what is the rhetoric behind it it might not be papal infallibility to avi Shafrin, but you could certainly forgive those rabbis who interpret Das Torah to be a matter of palpable infallibility, because going back to Ramban, that's actually what it means. God protects you from making mistakes and making errors because the Spirit of God rests on them. Right? Now, to me, that seems pretty clear. The other question is, to what extent is it Jewish? Now, for that, you have to rewind about a thousand years to a guy named Tertullian, who was one of the early church fathers, who wrote, For the church is properly and primarily the Spirit, in whom is the Trinity of the one divinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Spirit makes the assembly of the church, which the Lord established in three persons. And thus the whole number of those who have leagued together in this faith is given the status of the church by the church's author and consecrator. For the right of judgment belongs to the Lord, not to the servant, to God himself, not to the priest. Effectively arguing, when a whole bunch of the priests get together and make their decisions, God is speaking through them, not the priests themselves, and that's whence they derive their authority. So when you start making you know, these glib remarks about gadolatry, you see they're not so glib. Because if you take it all the way back to... And again, you would have to like nag someone a while 
to eventually get out a logical formula here. You have to listen to the rabbis because they're so well-versed in Torah, and therefore they have a divine spirit upon them. Therefore, they are infallible because God isn't going to make them make a mistake. Well, now you are believing in the a, a very specific hierarchy where certain rabbis have the ability, have uh, access to spiritual divine intuition that no one else does, and that's what you're really having faith in. Not so much that the rabbi is knowledgeable, but for this, a munat chachamim of faith in the sages, it's not faith of sages, it's a munat You're having faith in the human himself as being, if not an incarnation of God, is certainly his receptacle. So that is the narrative that you're having a belief in. It's not that you believe he's smart, not that you really believe he's knowledgeable. You believe that God's talking through him. Whoa, that's already a big difference. Now, I know Rabbi Shaffron tried, you know, steering the conversation away from that. But if you actually, you know, again, this was only a very short source sheet. You could spend a lot more time unpacking it and find similar stuff. But the link is there both in terms of how Das Torah was used previously, in terms of the appeal to lo yasri yaminu small, do not deviate to the left and to the right, and how was that law of lo yasri yaminu small, do not deviate to the left and right, interpreted. In the Gemara, it meant one thing, according to Ramban, it meant something else that has no basis in earlier rabbinic literature, but it does in the early church fathers. <laughs> Take that what you will. Yeah. Isn't the Ramban sort of setting everybody up for failure? As soon as we see, okay, if they're forever protected from mistakes and stumbling, so the first time you're over at the Guddle's house and he yells at his wife for burning the, burning the chicken, yeah, you know. How do you know that's a mistake? How do you know it's a mistake not to yell at your wife for burning your chicken? You know, according to Hillel, that's grounds for divorce. Well, you're, you're assuming you're treating your wife as a chafer. Okay, so, 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 yelling at the yeshiva cook. For burning the chicken. Maybe it's a way of giving Musa and Hachada. Listen. <laughs> oh, come on. Look, here's the thing when you deal with things like pilpul. Anything can be anything else. Anything can be spun in any given way. Okay. You've read enough guttle books to know that anything can be done. If anyone's interested, uh, it, it, it's impossible to find now. At YU, they used to have these like parody issues of journals. So they had one of a uh, parody version of the Jewish Studies Journal, and they had the Art Scroll Rambam that was really beautifully subversive. I wish I could dig up some of the lines from it. But it involved like how the Rambam during this cold weather saw this poor person and was shivering and he was doing this calculation about whether or not to give his coat. And after and he went through a whole bunch of lumpish things and the Rambam did, wisely decided to keep his coat in his infinite wisdom type things. Like you could really spin anything in any way that you want, right? So what do you want? Like it could really be, oh, even left is right. And you'll find art scroll books, you know, that are all bunch of, you know, these guttle stories of, you know, the rabbi told them that everyone thought was counterintuitive, and look, he was proved right. You should know the way Kaplan ends his article is by uh, cita- citing all of those rabbis who told people before Europe, don't leave Europe, don't go to Israel. Oh. And at the end of the day, who are the ones that got saved? Those rabbis, because they shuttled out their great rabbis while their followers burned. Uh, and he has a very harsh quote at the end of that. So, yeah, there's a great deal of historical revisionism that goes with that, too. Yeah. Uh, again, I highly recommend any, everyone get a copy of this article. Any questions here? Think I was too harsh, unfair arguments? It's a shame Ed isn't here. He loves this type of uh, thing. I, I sent him an email. Well, one of the guys who comes here, he, yeah. Any thoughts? 
comments? Fair, unfair reactions? Well, you, you, I want to ask. Yeah. Corinne, what do you think? Uh, I just keep thinking back to Maimonides, and um, the, the left and right thing reminds me of the, um, the description in the Guide to, Guide to the Perplexed of the sphere that's uh, 10 and not 9, mm-hmm. and 11 and 10 without end. Um, I'm not sure if there's any legitimate connection there, but just the. the Why language, do you make that connection? The language ah. uh, makes me think of that. Interesting. I know. I don't know what the apparent connection is, yeah. but maybe think about that. Yeah. Corey, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, some of these are, are, are pretty hard to swallow, mm. uh, obviously. Um, but, I mean, you know, it, it, it seems like, you know, if, if you're going to make a... It seems like there should be a place for making at least a more limited claim for mm-hmm. Da Torah. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you're not going to take the... You know, like, it, it, it seems like the position of, you know, relegating rabbis to calling balls and strikes mm-hmm. is untenable mm-hmm. because, you know, like, if if study of... Or if knowledge of Torah does not confer mm-hmm. some greater insight into everything, mm-hmm. then what's the point of knowledge of Torah? You know, like, there has to be space for I that. think God's will is a pretty big, you know... I mean, trying to like understanding God's will or trying to understand God, what God wants of you, to me is a you know pretty good plus there. That doesn't mean that if I study Gemara, I'm going to know physics, right? Right? There's a huge, huge difference there. Right. But I could also give you you know the counter. No, no, no. But what I'm saying is that you know all things being equal, mm-hmm. you know, you should you, you know it it should be the case that someone with Torah knowledge yeah. should have greater insight than someone without Torah knowledge. It's possible because there are different types of Torah knowledge, right? Someone can be an expert in one aspect of Torah and be oblivious in others. If all you know are what's in the books, you may not know human nature. You may not know psychology. And this is also where I keep saying you have the difference between halacha and psaq. Where, and you know, people have done studies on you know, the difference between the Mishnah Burah and the Arach HaSholchan. Because the Mishnah Burah was in a yeshiva for most of the time. The Arach HaSholchan was a pulpit rabbi. Uh, rab, um, uh, Dr. Chaim Soloveitchik's Rupture and Reconstruction essay, which is much like also goes through that distinction about how much of it is book learning versus communal learning. There's a whole bunch of other, st- or, you know, mimetic culture of just copying what everyone else did. There are, there are, and even if you'd want to deal with the Torah itself, Something that we'll see in a couple of weeks, it's really easy to focus on certain things to the exclusion of others and to pretend that stuff doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, one example that we'll see in a few weeks, I'll just throw this out there because it comes up a lot, Tselemelokim. Right? People say, oh, Tselemelokim is, you know, that we're created in the image of, mankind is created in the image of God. That is ethic number one and everything else comes under that, Right? And you know, we'll talk about this a little later, but the same God who came up with Selim Elohim also said, wipe out Amalek, is the same God who had Eshet Yafat Tor in there, also had, you know, uh, the Bain Sawyer Morat, right? A whole bunch of other things that seem to, well, Selim Elohim, well, why do we stone someone who, you know, blasphemed against God? Isn't that a bit harsh, right? So it depends on which parts you decide to emphasize at the expense of others. There are lots of Gemars that people, quote, don't hold by. Right? Like the one that I cited earlier about not having your leader being a Torah scholar. And uh, we explained some reasons why that's true. So clearly, 
you know, not the case, or at least if they're the ones you always consult, I mean, there's a reason why you don't have them in charge of things, right? And, and there are different interpretations why, but all those reasons why they shouldn't be in charge might also be a good reason why you don't consult with them, right? Because if there's going to be some division between practically running a city and something else, that doesn't mean you don't, I mean, you could, but again, the real question is, do you have to? Must you consult? I'll tell you, there's one, one t- time where rabbis can gain a great deal of knowledge, even though they may not have a real life experiences. This is something that, uh, Rabbi Dr. Alan Brill wrote, uh, in I think it was Thinking God about the role of the Rebbe in, you know, certain cultures. When everyone comes and asks the rabbi a question, people have to sit and explain their scenario and their situation to the rabbi. If the rabbi actually pays attention to what people are saying, you can learn a lot. So like, let's say I've, someone comes to me and has a farming question. So I'm going to have ask a bunch of questions. Tell me what you're doing with farming. So this farmer is going to teach me about farming. Someone comes to me about derivatives training. I'll say, explain to me what you're doing. So he'll explain to me derivatives. And that way you wind up getting, again, if you're doing a good job, just by mere exposure to the wide range of questions, you wind up learning a whole lot more from people who are intimately involved. And then you can start making a whole bunch of other different connections. I mean, that's that, that's certainly the case that that, that that can happen. Yeah. But that's not, by, that's not simply by virtue of Torah knowledge. True. Um, it, it, it kind of, yeah. But you can see how it can be, uh, get confused. Yeah. Wouldn't a rabbi who isn't a farming expert, if he knows of a farming expert, just refer the question out? Uh, it depends, because if it's a halachic question, right, and say, well, I know halacha, but I don't really know the farming. Explain the farming, and I can tell you the halacha, right? Now, you can farm out, so to speak, yes. a farming question. Like if he says, which crop should I grow? It's like, I don't know. Like, have you tried corn or something? Uh, versus this is a halacha question and it involves, let's say, kilayim or whatnot. Yeah. Well, then you actually have to, and you should know, this is something that Ruf Tendler used to complain about often, uh, about people making psak halacha without knowing what they're talking about. And he gave an example of, um, like, if you're in, in shrita, you can't be a shochet unless you know biology. Because you have to, at least if you want to check if an animal is kosher, you actually have to examine the internal organs. But unless you know what those internal organs are and what they do, what are you doing? Right? Um, and he also gave an example with a lift and cut razor. Um, where, there, though, I think it was Ruf Moshe who didn't hold up the lift and cut razor from the Relco. Okay, so visually here, he at least for those who are he didn't. He, he said he couldn't. Here's the thing. Oh, okay. Jewish law, you're not allowed to shave with a razor, but you are allowed to shave with a scissor. And the difference is this. Uh, picture this pen is a thing of hair, follicle of hair. A scissor has a flat point, and the blade would come, and it breaks the uh, hair you know, with over a stationary point and one thing that's moving, as opposed to a razor, which just cuts it straight off like that, almost like a side. Now, the thing with the lift and cut from Norelco, if you watch the commercials from back in the day, it had these two blades. The first one held it up, and the bottom one sliced it down. So, as Rabbi Tendler put it, if you're following the Madison Avenue description, that is a ta'ar. That is a razor, and is forbidden to use. What did Rav Tendler do? He took apart the razor, and he fiddled around with it. And he said, the way they're describing it in their like cute little graphics is not what it actually does. 
And he only did that because he took it apart. And he said, well, now he's right. Like, if you, if this is how it's described, it's like, okay, well, if that's what it is, then it's no good. But if you take it apart and it's doing something different, you know, then it's doing something different. That's just not how it is. Mm-hmm. And he used to yell at us. I mean, by us, I mean his shear and the rest. Of, it's kind of weird. Where you have, like, rabbis in YU, I had this on a few times, yelled at their own shear for not believing things that they already believed in, otherwise they wouldn't be in the shear. <laughs> uh, like, Rabbi Katzalav Hashem used to complain that students would study Yoridea without studying the Gemara Chulin beforehand. And he said that numerous times in Shir, and we kept saying, Rebbe, that's why we're here. Like, you should tell the other people who aren't. Anyway, point is, yes, you ought to know what you're talking about. Or, alternatively, maybe speak a little bit with a little more humility, right? Part of the issue here, again, isn't so much consulting rabbis, right? Consult as much as you can. It's the arrogance comes in, one, when a rabbi makes claims off of something he can't understand. And to me, that's a lot more arrogant than a rabbi who actually writes out a position and says, here's what I think based on these and these sources. Right? You like it, fine. You don't, don't. Rav Moshe Feinstein, to my knowledge, never said that anyone had to listen to his responsa. Um, there's a wonderful interview of him in the 70s in the New York Times where he basically summarized it as saying, well, people sent me questions. I gave them answers. They like, keep, if they like your answers, they keep asking you more questions. And that's how you wind up writing stuff, right? So the arrogance today, though, has been you're not even allowed to have an opinion. You're not even allowed to offer an argument unless you actually go through the proper channels, in which case it's not just consulting as much as you have a religious obligation to give deference to these people whom we say they do for reasons that we cannot possibly quantify or qualify other than social consensus. That's the real problem here. I have no problem with any rabbi getting up and saying what they want because the truth is many do anyway, right? Do rabbis say certain th- stupid things from time to time? Sure. I do it myself quite often. That's why we have Twitter, right? But the point is, do you have to follow them, right? And that's the real issue of Das Torah, not, you know, can someone have an opinion? Are you entitled to have, like, can rabbis earn certain respect more than others? Sure. There are reasons why Rav Moshe Feinstein is more, more respected than just about all of his rabbinic contemporaries. But does that mean Jewish law ends with him? Does that mean that I have a right to tell you, you have to follow Rav Moshe Feinstein? Are you breaking the will of God if you don't follow Rav Moshe Feinstein? Those are very, very different statements. And it's important when people throw out these terms to know what are all of the assumptions behind it that they're trying to impose on you that they might take for granted. But when you start asking a few questions, the entire system not only begins to unravel, but you see that it is a complete distortion of the authentic Jewish tradition that oftentimes these rabbis themselves would never assert on their own, even though their followers might for their own reasons that might not always be so kosher, might not always be so spiritual or, you know, special in that way. Mm. All right. Have a wonderful week.